Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good morning. Is it morning? It I is, mean, it is morning. It's sort of one of the things that I'm still trying to figure out when it comes to, you know, podcasting because, you know, when this is recorded, when it's uploaded, God knows when people are listening to it, right? Is it is it jarring to talk about the here and now? Should we should we try to be completely time and spaceless as if we're hanging in a dark void together and It's interesting. I interviewed this world-class philosopher this week a guy who's been somebody i've admired intellectually for years and it was he wrote a memoir and they actually pitched the book to me i was like i'd love to do this nicholas walterstorff but he said that you know early on in philosophy you know inspired from kant he learned that what philosophers do is sort of study the necessary versus the contingent right like that artists art historians study the contingencies of this artistic development or that and the philosopher handles that what is you know they're necessarily for there to be art he said he basically learned that that's kind of bullshit, that distinction. Most of his work was transgressing the boundaries of necessity and contingency. So, you know, we're, we're, this is a podcast where we will transgress many boundaries. One of them will be necessity and contingency. So, indeed, it is morning. It's cold. March 1st. My wife lived in Moscow for a few years. She taught at an orphanage. And she said that on March 1st, you said to all the children, congratulations for making it to March 1st. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I can't believe that's not a Canadian tradition because it totally should be. I was I was back in Canada uh, just last week um, taking part in uh, a town hall debate that was organized by the Canadian Broadcasting Service, sort of our PBS, uh, on immigration. And I, I got off the airplane uh, in my home city and I almost just turned around and got back on the plane. It was so cold. It was like minus, you know, 30, 35 Celsius. So it's actually the point on the temperature scale where Celsius and Fahrenheit converge. That's not right. <laughs> People shouldn't live like that. Well, I mean, I, I did it for years, but I, I guess I've grown soft the, the years and years that I've lived outside of, outside of that temperature. And it's been a really long winter. There, there was an article, again, to Necessity and Contingency in Commentary Magazine about American exceptionalism. And, and the guy's like, a lot of what makes American exceptional is luck. Like, it's big, it's got a lot of natural resources, and the ones that are really valuable, like mineral resources, we can find north and south, and they're not military threats. And most of this big landmass is in a temperate climate, which is the most mm. productive, you know, on many fronts. It's just like listing all these things like... England kind of ignored it. So they learned self-government skills really well because they were, as opposed to like Spanish colonies, hmm. and, which were hands down, top down, very autocratic. And then when they become independent, they're like, we really haven't practiced self-government. Really. Like it's just, it was like so much of what made America like unique was just like contingent. Like it was very, you know. I Yeah, that's very interesting. And I love, you know, I love the grand historical views on things like this. Like remember, I guess now, more than a decade ago, Jared Diamond came out with guns, germs, and steel. Right, right, right. And and it's very much like, wow, I mean, if you just look at some broad uh, contingencies, you can explain so much about how history has has unfolded. Um, yeah, like like whether you're in a temperate zone or a tropical zone has, has all these giant implications for 
Um, just one, how pleasant it is to be there, but also the incidence of disease. And but I didn't think of that. You know, here in the UK, that you know, part of the sort of obstinate independence that is just part of the political culture in this country has to do with you know, sort of being this little barnacle on the edge of Europe that really no one had time to pay attention to and focus on. Right. So it and also. It it led to a lot of things like less military threats because you're not bordered by people and you and mm. you know and also like there's this interesting sort of local government mm. predominance well, you know, like these I mean, lo- local lords local things so you 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 learn this mm. kind of uh, e pluribus unum governmentally that I think is very mm. you know intriguing. Mm. I mean, I guess you could summarize it this way: I don't think in Roman times that being made you know the governor of Britain was a promotion. No, <laughs> no. I don't think it was a step up. No, it was more like, mm, yeah. Hello, you don't want to see hello, governor. <laughs> but on to science. Let's talk science. We we were deciding what we we're going to talk about today, and we decided you just said that you wanted to talk to, and I'm going to quote you to you. He says, "Let's talk about science, big picture physics of the universe, and how to integrate that perspective with the here and now of our lives." The running theme of necessity and contingency. Hey, I mean, good on you to connect that. Um, it was not purposeful. It started with weather, but then I... Because, yeah, whether uh, if this idea of contingency and necessity might be the might be the meta theme that's going to run through all of this. But I guess, I mean, you you must have had that, right? Where Whether it's a, a movie or going to like an air and space museum or... or or, or, or just you know, on a on a nice clear night, looking out at the stars, the sense of awe and and vastness, and just the kind of getting out of ourselves and and the minutia of life, and kind of taking just just you know a step back and 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 looking at a bigger picture of the world. I mean, we we've all had that experience, right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, unless you're just a particularly boring person, I don't think. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. This, I mean, this... but at least looking up at the stars and, you know, especially if one's ever traveled to a place where there's very little light pollution and you really get to see, you know, why it's called the Milky Way, because there's just this kind of yeah. background glow of these billions and billions of stars um, against the, the kind of black velvet night sky. And I suppose then that. <sighs> The, the question I thought, let's just kind of hum and haw on this for, for 20, 30 minutes, is, you know, so what do we do with that? How do we, I mean, is it just a kind of, you know, a, a kind of a form of elevated entertainment and a kind of, mm, that was nice? Or, or is there some way that we can integrate, you know, what is real from, from that sort of cosmic perspective into, um, you know, our, our much more immediate reality i think i think that's kind of the big question that that underlies you know that, that we kind of confront anytime we look up at the stars this sort of question of yeah this is great but so what <laughs> how do i how do i integrate these perspectives into my life yeah i think that so i have several thoughts on that like i think on one level there's i knew you would i knew you uh, would. okay I'm, get, I'm getting out my pen there's a an author uh, I recently interviewed who is from on your side of the pond, so to speak, and she is a an Aristotle scholar. Her name is uh, Edith Hall. She wrote this great book, which if anyone wants to wade into Aristotle, I would highly recommend it. It's it's called 
how ancient wisdom can change your life. And it's very interesting because she said hmm. Aristotle is a philosopher of the whole, right? And so, you know, it's interesting that Aristotle thinks that the that, that because we're rational animals that and that the universe seems like it exhibits a rationality that there, that there ought to be teleology to it that as we study it you know that, that it ought to make sense and, and somehow what you know about science ought to make ought to connect somehow with what you know about mathematics and politics and ethics and you know and, and, and these sciences are all different method he says you know you can't expect the same the same kind of precision from studying rhetoric is mathematics, but that doesn't lead to nihilism or anything. It just means they're different kinds of knowledge. And I think that, you know, we we're talking, I said, you know, it strikes me that Aristotle we would be wowed by our knowledge of the natural world, which he loved, you know, allegedly like when I guess Alexander the Great would find that he said, bring me back samples. And, you know, he, he loved zoology, he loved it, but he didn't know as much about the world, but he felt more at home in it. Right. And he had this he had this famous phrase, if if your philosophy conflicts with the doxa, with the common sense of how things seem, change the doxa, right? Change the theory. Wait, wait what was that word? The doxa. doxa like it's in Greek, uh, delta, uh, omicron, chi, uh, alpha. Uh, You've just gone to a whole new level of Greek. New Testament that. Greek, baby. <laughs> my Hebrew is not nearly as good as my Greek because my Hebrew, if my Hebrew teacher would have been a better person and, and I would have been my mother I would have been a better person my Greek teacher was a taskmaster and I learned it better but but dokes it so like how things seem so here's the thing about our perspective on science like we know more about frogs right or or stars than Aristotle could have dreamed of hmm. but he would say then why frogs what are they essentially and, and what's the and how does that connect and then we're like well that's not what science does you got to go down the philosophy or the religion or the so so when we, you know, the sort of fact-value dichotomy, we try to to break apart, you know, sort of empirical things and whatnot from meaning questions, I think that we wind up in a state of alienation. And exactly what you're saying, you have these, like, this sense of wonder. This philosopher I interviewed, his, it's great, great uh, title for his memoir, In This World of Wonders, Memoir of a Life in Learning. And so part of, I think, what mm. makes a great philosopher is wonder, right? You Chesterton talks about like the difference between like a four-year-old and 14-year-old at the zoo. And what is it? Like at four, everything is a snuffleupagus. Like a cheetah seems as, as fanciful as a unicorn. When you're 14, you're on your phone, right? There's no more wonder. Oh, there's just cheetahs. Of course the world has cheetahs. So like, I think that that sense of wonder uh, deepens as, it, as, as these things become part of a fabric of meaning. And I think the way we approach things like the natural sciences often de, de, rob us of a sense of uh, connecting things like, like they call the quest for like a theory of everything. Uh, I mean, I, and I suppose that's one of the, maybe one of the conflicts within science itself is, uh, you know, how much of this is it a kind of an empirical expedition to, you know, discover you know, what is the limits of what we can explain just using kind of the laws of physics and mathematics and, you know, probability and statistics versus when do we need to have some kind of outside meaning to make sense of things? And, and, and I kind of get the sense that, you know, within the scientific community, certainly like within the sort of the theoretical physics community where, where they're trying to kind of figure out like what is creation and where did it all come from? I suspect that there is a, uh, a kind of a, a real tension there between sort of feeling like there is an order to things that is difficult to explain, but also not wanting to, you know, quote unquote, give up 
because it seems like a kind of giving up if you just say, well, I mean, this is as far as we can go with the laws of physics and the rest is either magic or beyond sort of the human brain's capacity to understand. So we'll just stop. I mean, I, I don't think that anyone who does hard science is, is just wired to, to stop uh, searching for uh, empirical explanations. There's actually, so, and I, I guess I've been grappling with this ever since. So one of the last books that, uh, that I read was by uh, Leonard Susskind. And, and Leonard um, is one of the founders of string theory. So kind of back in the 70s, he, he, he started to come up with this just new theory of kind of what is the elementary thing uh, out of which everything else is, is composed. And, and, and so that was his claim to fame. But he, in the last few years, he's turned to writing more popular science books so that people like me can you know, kind of grasp what are these uh, you know, complicated problems that physicists are working on today. And, and he says, so the, big, the biggest question in physics right now as uh, as he views it is is basically trying to explain trying to figure out why our universe is uh, as finely tuned as it is so it turns out that there are all of these sort of you know quite basic properties to the universe like like the the the, the strength of the pull between the nucleus of an atom and the electrons that orbit around it um, you know, the, the strength of gravity. And he says that, you know, what, what we discover is, so one, we haven't found any good reason why these sort of basic constants are what they are, are the value that they are, and not something else. So we don't know why they are the levels that they are. But what we do know is that if those levels changed even a little bit, we would not exist. Because either the chemical processes, biological processes wouldn't work, or or galaxies wouldn't have sort of billions of years to form and unfold so that intelligent life and Darwinian evolution and all of that would have just, you know, enough time scale to produce intelligent life. Uh, but so long story short is the better, more deeply we understand how the universe is tuned, the more we realize that, you know, we are in this uh, tiny zone of of many different sort of laws of physics lining up just so to make intelligent life possible and so he says you know on the on that frontier there's basically two possibilities so one maybe we do need to bring in some kind of anthropic principle that that the reason that all of these variables in physics are so finely tuned is because they need to be finely tuned in order for us to exist. This is uh, the, the watchmaker theory. Paley, dude, this is uh, every natural theologian loves this stuff. Okay, yeah. You know, so, they, 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 come on. How can you be an atheist when you look at the – I mean, I, in general, I don't find most of those arguments theologically or philosophically necessarily per, completely persuasive. But they're existentially very compelling. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. And, Which and, is and not so, nothing. I mean, you know, like. But he says, so the other possibility is if you want to stay in a kind of, you know, agnostic, um, you know, scientific, empirical, statistical mindset, then the other possibility is that um, there are many, many, many different universes, which is to say that, you know, all of all of the different possible values that these fundamental constants in nature, you know, force of gravity and the, the strong forces inside the nucleus and all of that, you know, 
probably do occur somewhere in the megaverse. And if we assume that there are, you know, a kind of a meaningless number of all these possible universes actually populating the megaverse somewhere, then the fact that we live in in such a, a finely tuned, in such an improbable universe, uh, with such an improbable coming together of all the right laws of physics, um, just becomes inevitable. It just becomes the law of large numbers. If you know, if there's a a one percent chance of something happening, uh, but we run the experiment a hundred times, then it's not at all surprising that that thing happens. It's just the law of large numbers, and 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 so similarly, he says like the numbers are much much bigger. He's kind of like you know talking ten to the five hundred, like this cosmically big number. But if there are that number of universes, then the fact that ours exists is no longer improbable, no longer requires some kind of anthropic explanation of how are we so lucky. It, it's just inevitable that this universe will exist too. And, you know, and I think that, and I'm like, William James fuck, has the, fuck me. <laughs> has the answer. All I mean, William James, I forget, like psychology of religious belief, I think he says, you know, well, people like need predestination for like when they need like a moral holiday, they need to relax and they're not in control of the world. And then they need doctrines of free will when they need to actually exercise more responsibility. So you sort of take these different ultimate sort of metaphysical stances mm. based on what mm. you psychologically need. There need. you go. Now, hello, my name is Captain Reductionist. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, if, okay, yeah. So like, if nothing matters or if I need to take responsibility for something, you, you look at it differently. But that's sort of like want, if, you, if, you're, I, if you're feeling like the need for the, the mythical mm. and meaning, you, you go to anthropic. And then if you want to be more skeptical and and you're worried about over-mythologizing, then you go to the multiverse thing that says, well, this, you know, it, it was bound to happen. By the way, the multiverse thing is so important when you reboot comic superheroes, like DC and Marvel. You know, it's like, <laughs> like, well, the Superman that can only leap over sing, uh, tall buildings in a single bound, he was Superman prior. In one universe where Superman in that Earth couldn't fly, he could just leap like the Hulk. But then in this universe, Superman can really fly, and then one time the sleeping Superman meets the flying Superman, and multiverse is necessity for any comic book. Right. It, it is. It is. A, a, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to build off the comic book comment. Um, although, you know, the Star Trek universe, which I followed quite closely, is getting really confusing for me right now. I, I don't know if I can reconcile all the timelines in my head. But but back to this theme on sort of, you know, empirical versus meaning and the tension between those. It does seem that um, the distance between those two perspectives is getting greater and greater. There was a great book back, oh, I don't know when he published it. I'm, I'm thinking of Carl Sagan's book, Pale Blue Dot. Did you ever read that? I never read Pale Blue Dot. So so you're familiar with Carl Sagan, right? Yeah. Kind of the yeah, sort of famous, famous popular astronomer. And Pale Blue Dot, the, the book is actually a reference to a photograph. Like popular which, astronomer like is the equivalent of like C-list celebrity or D-list celebrity. I, I didn't mean I mean although Neil, De, although, Neil deGrasse, although Neil deGrasse Tyson might have blown that up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've never I've never watched any of his stuff. By he's the way, pretty but funny. I know, he's pretty entertaining. Yeah. I mean, it's hey, it's astronomy. If you can't make, if you can't make that entertaining, you're just really bad at what you do. <laughs> Absolutely. But so, pale blue dot is a reference to this famous, um, I think it's like Voyager two photograph of the Earth, uh, and basically as this spacecraft was getting to the very limits of um, of kind of visual range from the Earth. Uh, NASA sent a command to spin its cameras back to planet Earth and snap a photograph. 
And when it came back, you know, it is just this tiny speck of blue um, suspended in uh, in space. And 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 it was really at, at at the time, and I think this was the seventies, kind of a you know an iconic photograph to to I guess inspire and challenge with the kind of <gasps> how small we are. Yeah. Right. Let's get a different perspective on things. And but in in Pale Blue Dot, Carl Sagan talks about the great demotions. And what he means by that is he says, well, you know, roll back to a time when we thought that the Earth was the center of creation. Yeah. And then Copernicus, I mean, other people before him, but but at least in, in sort of the, the modern lineage, it's Copernicus who really rams home the idea that, well, no, that's not quite true. It, it, the sun is the center of the universe. The earth just spins around it. So we, we had to kind of come to grips with that. Um, but at least the sun was the center of the universe. And then, you know, fast forward to the 1900s. Uh, I think 1910s, 1920s, you get Edwin Hubble, who does the research that shows, hey, do you know, like, actually, the sun is moving through space. Um, right. You know, we're we're basically just, a, you know, orbiting around a fiery comet in uh, a distant arm of the Milky Way galaxy. Um, you know, but at least we're in the galaxy. And, and then it's like, oh, but there are many galaxies, so we're just a kind of ordinary galaxy. And, you know, the universe got bigger and bigger, and our place within it got less and less meaningful. And to think that now where uh, where the scientific mind is at is to say that, I mean, it's, it's actually within the megaverse, you know, is, is maybe if we want to understand what is the human condition, you know, we're, we're not just a pale blue dot within the universe, but even our universe is as, is potentially as, as ordinary as we once thought, you know, our, our planet was. I, I'm, not, I'm not explaining this very well, but, but it, it's just enor- it's, it's mind-blowing to me how, how far away from the here and now it is now possible and, and rational to visualize the human condition. Yeah, and the finitude thing, I have a couple of thoughts. So I, I think it's Ingersoll, like a 19th century like, American humanist that said love is the flower that only blooms at the grave. So like the finitude. Love is the flower that only blooms at the grave. So it's only in your consciousness of death and finitude that you can really love and be passionate. And I think there's probably something to that. Hmm. But I think about like reductionism, you know, one of the things Walter Storff says in his book, this philosopher interviewed was he talks about sort of like when he was in graduate school and he's a man like in his eighties, I think now but he t- when he was in graduate school like how logical positivism died he's like the problem was like you know logical positivism this philosophical movement that attempts to rule out religious or metaphysical or theological claims or anything so it's sort of this minimalist role for philosophy and it, it tries to say well if a sentence uh, doesn't describe something in the world that we can prove you know like is it raining outside or isn't analytic like all bachelors are male or two plus two equals four, then it's not a meaningful sentence. And he described this like story of a Midwestern vacuum salesman who comes and tries to sell a vacuum to this woman. And she says, look, let me plug in. It's going to blow you away. And he's vacuuming. And she says, but it didn't pick up all the dust. There's still dust over there. And he says, no, no, no. If this doesn't pick it up, it ain't dust. (laughs) And that's what like La Paz was, because the problem was, it, not only theological, metaphysical claims were ruled out, but ethical claims and certain scientific, you know, physics claims, certain claims of physics that that couldn't, you know, didn't meet the criteria. And it sort of, it's it it became the snake that that ate its own tail. 
But also there's this piece in the New Yorker, I'll put it in the show notes, called A New Kind of Theory of Everything. And I'll just read a, a quick passage from it. And the author says, traditionally, physicists have been reductionists. They've searched for a theory of everything that describes reality in terms of its most fundamental components. In this way of thinking, the known laws of physics are provisional, approximating an as yet unknown, more detailed description. A table is really a collection of atoms. Atoms, upon closer inspection, reveal themselves to be protons and neutrons. Each of these is more microscopically a tree of quarks and so forth. Reductionists think that they are playing a game of telephone as the message of reality travels upward from the microphone to the macroscopic scale. It becomes more garbled and they must work their way downward to recover the truth. Physicists now know that gravity wrecks this naive scheme by shaping the universe on both large and small scales. And then uh, this one uh, thinker that the author is mentioning says that that um, in, in conclusion that uh, where's the in conclusion that basically says that this is this thing is should be turned on its head because basically and I'll just like summarize because I can't believe I can't find it. But it says, oh, now this is like really bad radio. But basically <laughs> the the author is saying in the piece that one of the thinkers, one of the physicists that they mention is saying that what if the universe is not uh, one big. Oh, here it is now. Arkani Hamed now sees the ultimate goal of physics as figuring out the mathematical question from which all the answers flow, as opposed to the other way. The answer to the 10th of the the level of the intellectual heaven, he told me, would be if we found the question to which the universe is the answer. And the nature of that question in and of itself explains why it was possible to describe it in so many different ways. It's as though physics has been turned inside out and now appears that the answers already surround us. It's the question we don't know. That's deep. Oh, yeah, because basically they, they, the, the article goes through how you could go through like different explanations of gravity and how each of them works on one level and not on others and how basically the, the phys, physicists, seem, physicists have, have seen this as a problem to be overcome, but maybe the multiplicity is, is not a problem, right? The, the, all these questions get at the answer. Uh, so I think that's just like fantastic. And, and, and the criti- critique of reductionism there, I think is uh, stellar and, and, and part of these connections, right? Like that you're talking about, how do we connect this to everyday life? Like I think I've, there's this great uh, book by Christian Smith, who's a sociologist and it, it's, oh shoot, what does it mean to be human or something? I think is the title. But basically, he he was talking about how most of his colleagues in social science are very liberative in their politics, right? But that their anthropology, you know, what, how they view the human, from, if you listen to them strictly from their discipline, couldn't underwrite their political commitments, right? Because they're so reductive. And he said, I think we need something like a soul-like quality. He's like, I'm not talking about anything religious or metaphysical, even though I'm religious. What I'm saying is that something like a soul that's an emergent property from our physics, our biology, our consciousness that can't be reduced to it. And most of the people in social sciences wouldn't want to acknowledge something like the, the minimalist soul he's talking about, but their politics require it, right? And, and he uses emergent theory to say, like, you look at a house, you know, is a house uh, bricklaying? No. Is it, you know, is it architect, art, mathematics? No. Is it architecture? But all these realities, like the, the, the emergent property of a completed house is not exactly each of its component parts. It's it's more than the sum. It transcends them, and yet it couldn't be what it is without any of them. And I think that, like that, is where I think like science, philosophy, quest for meaning are are probably meeting more rather than being antagonistic in their relationship. Because 
the, the, the study of kind of emergent properties and things like that it helps us realize that a lot of the reductionist stuff always puts us in, in, in a false disjuncture. Right, right. It sort of, it, it, assumes, it assumes many answers to questions that we are not even aware of. Right. Right, and and so you know it's uh, yeah that's very interesting. I mean, it, it's certainly something that I've just experienced in my teaching over the last couple of years. That you know the the question is so much more helpful to people than the answer. Right, uh, sending people away with good questions to reflect on is a far more productive and generative learning experience than giving them the answers to things. This is why T.S. Eliot said description right is always to be preferred over explanation because. An explanation is meant to mm. rule out is, other other explanations, mm. but descriptions mm. are not mutually exclusive. You could say describe this piece of art or describe this statue or describe this uh, historical account, and, and you and I could give different descriptions that are mm. complementary. If, if we're asked to explain something, then, uh, then automatically it's antagonistic and reductionist. We're, we're closing. You're, yeah, yeah it's either kind of or. Closing versus an opening. Yeah. Yeah, the description is opening, it's inviting, and the, and the explanation is closing and say, no, that's relevant, but this is not. But then to, to take that one step further and to kind of recognize that you know, maybe the, the biggest question is what is the question, <laughs> which is to, to, to your point about you know, maybe what, what physics ultimately needs to find for itself is, and, and I suppose every science and all of us need to find for ourselves, is what really is the question? And I, I like I like framing it that way that you know when we you know when we have that just personal experience of looking up at the stars or it doesn't have to be the stars right whenever there is sort of some kind of confrontation with awe and and we're, we're kind of struggling with but yeah but like how do I bottle this up like what do I do with it how do I how do I put this into my reality rather than sort of wall it off because it has no place. Um, maybe the answer is to to take it as an invitation to ask um, what is the question, which is which is to say that you know that it, it it may not provide answers of you know what should we value, what should we focus on, what should we pay attention to, but actually just reminding us that that is a question that we can ask ourselves is is the important work that that's being done. I, I, we'll have to we'll have to explore that a bit more because you know there is this, and we'll have to do it on on, uh, on on a future podcast. But I think there is this you know general and oft repeated wisdom that you know we need to see both sides of the story, shift our perspective, you know, understand things from different angles, and that makes sense. But what I think makes less sense to us is what do I do with that? You know, what do I do with the perspectives that aren't my own? You know, if I'm if I'm a scientist, what do I do with the perspective of like the the politician, or or you know, if I'm a politician, what do I do with the perspective of the of the scientist? I mean, we just we just live in completely different conceptual realities. Hegel would say, "Man, the truth is the whole." The truth is the whole. It, to which Adorno and, would respond that the whole uh, is a lie. Which I'm with Hegel, not Adorno on that. But well, uh, the truth is the whole. But then I think that. What, what the experience of awe helps us to do is to have the humility and the reminder that we can't perceive the whole. Right. That's, and for, we only and, have yeah. a part. And for Hegel, and, the whole is not accessible except through the particulars. It's not an end around around particularity. It's like, this is why for him, like contradictions and tensions and things are, are not something that you should look to transcend. 
that they're kind of they're at the heart of knowledge and and the truth. But you know, but to wrap up, X, you know, we're talking about how this is practically what the practical import is. It's that if you really believe that you know that this, if you want to be non-reductionist, if you want to be a reductionist, watch Wheel of Fortune. But the non-reductionist, <laughs> you should watch Jeopardy because everything is the question. Who is? What is? You know, Jeopardy's the model, right? That gives you the answer, and you have to phrase the question. You heard, you heard about Alex Trebek's news, did you? No. Uh, he he announced he has stage four pancreatic cancer. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so that's that's going to be his uh, his trial to to fight it off. He, it was a really touching announcement that he made. He said he's got to beat it because he's contracted to host Jeopardy through twenty twenty two or something like that. Um, on another aside, I'm supposed to, and you know, uh, God willing, we'll uh, we'll meet him in October. I'm going to be delivering the uh, the fifth annual Alex Trebek lecture um, this year. And uh, where is that going to be? It's actually going to be in Ottawa. He's Canadian, and that uh, I'm, I'm going to come to that. I'm going to come to that. I'm going to come to that. Oh, you should totally come. I'm sure I can get you uh, get you a guest pass or something like that. And and we'll you, maybe we'll you've got to we'll feel great about yourself. Yeah, we would have we can have him on the podcast. That would be great, dude. That would be great. Well, uh, That's the greatest okay. thing. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, dude, thanks for blowing my mind again. I'm um, going to have hey, to think about the this feelings one. mutual. Mm. Mm. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.